what's up, everybody? Hey, can I get a big shalom? Shalom, hey, awesome, glad you guys are here. Welcome back to uh, God of Miracles. This is our kind of our seven-week adventure trip through the Holy Land. Uh, my name's Tim, and uh, can we say happy spring to all our campuses? Give them a welcome, guys. What's up, everybody? Glad you guys are here. Church Online, Facebook Live. Hey, Easter is just around the corner. So what we're doing is we're kind of walking in the footsteps of Jesus. We're actually tracking his life through the Gospel of Mark. We're not just walking in his footsteps. We're going to the places where he uh, taught with authority, where he cast out demons, where he healed the sick and performed miracles, proving that he was not only God's son, but our Savior as well. Amen? So last week, Pastor Nathan took us on a hike up the Mount of Beatitudes. It's named that because it is a mountain where Jesus gave his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And um, this is really important. Jesus was not a polite preacher. He was a radical rabbi. He had a revolutionary message that no one had ever heard before in the world. And uh, he told his audience who were uh, poor Jews who were oppressed by Roman soldiers, he said, okay, here's what, here's what God is like. Here's how it's to have the God kind of life. I, instead of taking revenge on your enemies, I want you to turn the other what? cheek, and I want you to forgive them. I want you to bless them. I want you to love your enemies. And they were like, what? Yeah, God is not a God of uh, revenge and retaliation. He's a God of mercy and radical grace and forgiveness, which is a miracle itself, right? I mean, that'll take, I mean, you know, loving your enemies, it'll take your lifetime to put that into practice. But Jesus is stretching us, and today, I think he's going to challenge you to stretch your faith as we go for a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus spent 70% of his time in the Galilee region. That's northern Israel. He actually performed the majority of his miracles in the villages and towns that surrounded uh, that lake. And uh, he spent really most of his adult life uh, living on a lake. And so when Colleen and I were there in January, we were able to visit. So I want to take you on a little tour, kind of get your bearings. We'll spin the globe on Google Earth, and I think the first thing you'll notice is that the Sea of Galilee, it's actually not a sea, it's a lake, right? It's actually about 13 miles long by about 7 or 8 miles wide, and it's 40,000 acres. Now, some of you are like, I don't know, is that big? Like what? <laughs> uh, well, give you a comparison. Lake Hapatcong in New Jersey, right? Largest, you know, man-made lake in New Jersey. Uh, that's 2,500 acres acres. This is 40,000 acres, all right? So this is 20 times the size of Lake Kapakong. It's why they call it a sea. It's actually huge, okay? And here's the distinction. It is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It is 700 feet below sea level. And in fact, it goes down to about 150 feet deep. So understand something. That's very important if you remember. It's a low, low-lying freshwater lake. Now, Jesus loved living on the Sea of Galilee. It's actually mentioned in your Bibles over 40 times. And you'll typically see Jesus in the Bible walking along the shorelines. Remember Capernaum? That's his ministry headquarters. He'd walk down the beach and go to Tabgah. That's actually where he fed 5,000 people, performed the miracle of the five uh, loaves and two fishes. He feeds 5,000 people. That's the miracle you'll study this week in your small groups. Uh, he goes all the way down to Tiberias, named after the Roman emperor. And basically, Jesus, when it got too far, he often sailed by boat between the towns, from Tiberias back to Capernaum. Now, if you talk to people who've been to Israel and say, what was the best part? Nine times out of ten, they're going to mention a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. And that's because it is beautiful. 
uh, especially at sunrise and sunset. Um, the lake is gorgeous. Uh, you know, these beautiful hills kind of cast down into this majestic lake. You can see it's actually very lush and it's completely unspoiled. This is so cool. The government owns the property around the Sea of Galilee and they want to preserve it. So it's largely undeveloped. In other words, when you walk along the beach here, you're looking at it just the way it would have looked to Jesus and his disciples in the first century, which is pretty cool. Um, how many of you like uh, hanging out in a lake? How many of you are like lake people? Show of hands. Oh, okay, awesome. You're ready. You're like, get my flip-flops on. Okay, awesome. That's cool. Um, maybe you like to vacation on one. We love the lake. Uh, our family doesn't live on a lake. We have friends who do. Uh, and I just find when we visit, there's something like spiritual, you know, about being by the water. I've always found like, you know, like if I got to the beach in the morning, take out my Bible, like, man, it's just like a great place um, to encounter God. Well, guess what, guys? This is where Jesus' first followers, his disciples, encountered God in the flesh, walking along this lake right here. Mark 1 says this, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, and his brother Andrew, what were they doing? Throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Two things I love about Jesus. One, lives on a lake. Two, he's got fishing buddies, right? Guys, come on. Anybody, any guys like that? Anybody here like to fish? You're fish guys, okay? I love it. Uh, trout season is right on us, okay? Big mouth bass soon. Um, but the Bible says Jesus' first followers were fishermen, um, but probably not like you're thinking, See, in Jesus' day, they didn't use like a fishing rod and like rubber worms, you know, like let's go to Dick's and get some bait and you know, it's not that kind of thing. They used a net that looks like this. It's called a trammel net. It's actually designed for trapping, not hooking fish. Basically, you would hand cast the net into the lake and then you pull the net tight, it traps the fish. Let me give you a little live demo of how they fished in Jesus' day. Check this out. So you fling that net on the lake and then it kind of sinks down and you let it go into the deep water for even less than a minute actually. And then watch, you pull the net tight. Now I know some of you are saying, you're like, man, you ain't ever gonna catch anything like that. Look at that. Now watch carefully. Look how many there are. There's literally millions of Menhaden. Oh my gosh. Look how many there are. Oh ye of little faith, right? Some of you are like, I've been doing this wrong my whole life. I'm putting one, you know, rubber worm on at a time. And the way they did it is they cast the nets. And this is kind of cool. I mean, just take a look. Can you imagine bringing in a haul like this? You got those little wriggly guys in there, right? I'm like, forget it, man. I'm throwing out my ugly stick. I'm getting a net, okay? This is how they fish on the Sea of Galilee in the first century. And it says, one day... As Jesus was walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Peter and his brother Andy throwing their net in the water because they fished for a living. Now, you can still fish at, in the Sea of Galilee today, and you would catch something um, that locals call St. Peter's fish. They actually grill it in the restaurants around the lake. And it sounds exotic, but don't tell anyone, shh, it's actually just tilapia. Okay, that's it. You can get it at ShopRite, okay? <laughs> but <laughs> it says... Jesus called out to them, come follow me, and I'm going to show you how to fish for people. Yeah, they left their nets at once and followed Jesus. 
So Jesus goes fishing and he catches his first two disciples along the lake. And now watch him kind of reel in number three and four. Verse 19 says, a little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, Jimmy and John, in a boat repairing their nets. And he called them at once and they also what? Followed him. Which is pretty remarkable if you think about it. Because they're walking away from their family business. And understand, these are young Jewish men who are most likely teenagers. Did you know that? The movies always get it wrong. Whenever you see the disciples, they're these like middle-aged men with bushy beards. The reality is they were probably between the ages of 15 and 18 years old. Like at their most, maybe early 20s. That's who Jesus calls to be his disciples or his students. So understand, the disciples, they're, they're not middle-aged guys. Jesus is 30 years old. That was the time he became a, a rabbi. He's the teacher. They're his students, the Padawan learners. And, and give these guys credit, right? I mean, Peter, Andy, Jimmy, John, they, 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 they're like, okay, Jesus is calling us. They drop their nets. They walk away from the family business to follow him. Why? Because at this moment, Jesus is changing the world, Right? He, he, like this guy, he's saying things nobody said before. He's, he's teaching with authority. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. And, and, and Jesus was magnetic. People were drawn to him the way that he loved the poor and the outcasts. One of the things I love is that Jesus called, notice, ordinary, common, young adults to be his first followers. In fact, when I say like ordinary, commonplace, in uh, Acts chapter 4, it says that Peter and John were unschooled, ordinary men. And the Greek word for it is idiotai. <laughs> idiotai. Do you want to guess what English word comes from idiotai? <laughs> Idiots, okay? Now, it didn't have the same like, exact meaning, like you're a moron kind of thing, but it just basically means uh, these guys weren't on the honor roll, okay? <laughs> this wasn't, these weren't the valedictorians of you know, Galilee High School, okay? These were the C-minus students. In fact, reality is they probably didn't finish school, and they certainly would have been least likely to lead a global movement that would one day change the world, which I think shows you something cool about Jesus' heart. Do you notice something? God doesn't actually call those who are qualified. Rather, he qualifies those who are called by Jesus. Amen? So it's common people. It's ordinary idiotes. <laughs> Nothing special kind of people that God uses to change the world. Those who actually have enough faith to actually lay down their nets, walk away from a secure gig and say, Jesus, I'm available. Use me. So take heart. If you're a C student, you are right on track to target to change the world. Okay? That's awesome. <laughs> Bible says that God chose the lowly things, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. In other words, it shows off the power of God. Because when miracles happen in that ministry, guess who gets the credit? Only Jesus, because <laughs> everyone's like, well, it ain't these idiots, you know, they're, they're just ordinary. Now, now, just listen, I'm not throwing shade at the disciples here. I, I'm just setting the scene for what's about to happen next, because Jesus is about to give these young men a lesson on facing their fears and living by bold faith. So imagine in your mind with me, ready? Jesus just preached a sermon on the mount. He comes down. Uh, they sail back to uh, Capernaum. Probably spends the rest of the day, you know, teaching, healing the sick, and, and, uh, and now it's evening, and he's exhausted. So the sun is now setting on the Sea of Galilee. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35 says this, That day, when evening came, 
Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the, what's the phrase, church? Other side. Other side. Now, that's actually a nautical term. The Sea of Galilee is kind of cut into two parts, and on the western shore, that's where the Jews lived. But Gentiles, or, or non-Jews, pagans, lived on the east coast. And on, on that coast were these ten um, very sinful cities called the Decapolis. Ten sinful cities. It's like Vegas, okay? <laughs> and normally, no God-fearing Jew would cross to the other side. Like, we don't go over there. Yet here's Jesus. He's like, okay, you guys, students, you ready for a lesson? We're going to go to the other side. And so he tells these young men to get in the boat and let's go to the very place you spent your whole lives avoiding. And it says, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Verse 37, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly what? Swamped. Well, Jesus was in the stern, that's the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so, what's the word, church? Afraid, do you still have no faith? Well, they were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And in one miraculous moment, Jesus speaks to this storm and it rocks their world. How many of you uh, are boat people? You like to go sailing maybe in the ocean or, a, or you know, on a lake, uh, whatever it is. Okay, you would love sailing on the Sea of Galilee like Colin and I did in January because the water looks like this. It's actually beautiful. It is, it's like Lake Placid. It is peaceful. It is calm, very relaxing. In fact, you guys want to go for a boat ride? Yeah. All right, come on. Let's jump aboard. Here we go. Hey, guys. We're on the Sea of Galilee right now, and we're going to go take a boat ride. So check this out. We're going to head on out to where Jesus was. This is the Lake Gennesaret. It's actually 14 miles long, seven miles wide. Sea of Galilee right now, sailing along where Jesus sailed with his fishermen. We're on a fishing boat. We just took off from the shore. Right behind us, we got it going on. Drake in Hebrew right there, all right. So, so we had gorgeous weather in our boat ride, but notice in Mark 4, the disciples didn't. Verse 37 says, a furious squall came up out of nowhere, and the waves uh, swamped the boat. Now that's, you might read that and think, well, how does that happen? I mean, look at this. How does something so serene and peaceful suddenly turn into this serious storm with waves up to 20 feet high? This is one of those where you can say, is the Bible exaggerating for effect? Not at all. 
See, again, if you understand the geology and geography of Israel, you'd understand this. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded by these huge cliffs that go down 700 feet below sea level. And it creates a natural wind tunnel, basically. So when the Middle Eastern wind comes down into this thing with another 150 feet to the basin, it's like 800 feet, boom, boom. And all of a sudden, this little lake, without warning, can become a surging sea. And that is exactly what happens when the disciples get into the boat with Jesus. It says a furious squall came up and the boat was nearly swamped. Soldiers have a name for this kind of thing. They call it a rogue wave. Not rogue one, rogue wave, all right? Do you know how tall the average ocean wave is? It's about four and a half, five feet tall, average ocean wave. But there's a phenomenon known as a rogue wave that is utterly terrifying. It is a sailor's worst nightmare. It's when a giant wave rises 15 to 20 feet tall and threatens to swallow the whole boat. And rogue waves are something that sailors fear the most because they're totally unpredictable. You can't see them coming. They don't appear on the radar. They appear just out of nowhere and hit your broadside. And you know what? That's kind of a picture of life, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, from time to time, ordinary idiots like me <laughs> and you, we get hit with a sudden storm in our lives that rattles our faith and rocks our boat and, and, and causes tremendous fear. If you're taking notes, first notice this is an unexpected crisis they encounter. And that's what a rogue wave is. It's an unexpected crisis that hits you out of nowhere. For instance, you know, your boss calls you in on Monday and you think, oh, maybe I'm going to get a promotion. They're like, we need you to pack your things, hand in your card. And you're like, what? I, I thought that I thought that our business was doing well. And they're like, yeah, actually the company's doing well, but we're downsizing your department. You're like what? I, I was here 12 years. Boom. A rogue wave of unemployment. Or, or maybe your boyfriend or your girlfriend who, you know, you, you hoped you'd marry someday suddenly says, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> Want to throw them overboard, kind of, you know that. No, we just, I just need some space, whatever, right? Or, or worse yet, maybe your spouse of, you know, eight, ten years says, I can't do this anymore. I'm leaving. And suddenly, you're single. That's a rogue wave of relationships. Or, or the doctor, you know, gets back your blood work and calls and says, hey, can you come in? It's actually, it's more serious than we thought. Boom! Suddenly, you're gripped by all this paralyzing fear and worry and anxiety because your mind races to all the scary things that could mean. That's the thing about rogue waves. They appear out of nowhere and they strike fear into the heart of even experienced sailors. I mean, you know the squall was bad because remember, the disciples are fishermen. They'd been on boats hundreds if not thousands of times in weathered storms, but this one was different. They, they knew that a wave 20 feet high could develop within minutes. And it says the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped, and they knew that a man could be swallowed alive by the Sea of Galilee. His body never to be found beneath the water because it's 150 feet deep. Now, let's make this personal. Let's move from the first century to the 21st century and make it personal to you. I want you to think for a moment about a rogue wave that has hit you in the last 12 months. A situation, maybe a crisis, you didn't see coming, wasn't part of the plan. Maybe it was an unexpected crisis in your family that has suddenly unfolded this spring. 
Or, or maybe it's a longer wave that's been, it's just been building and building and building, and the situation now is threatening to swamp you. And here's the thing, it's got you questioning your faith in God. For example, I have a friend who is a, a small business owner, and uh, her, her industry, her company is kind of going through like a restructuring because like technology has happened, so this is like a, a, a time of big change, and there's a lot of disruption. And she said, Tim, it's crazy because things have sailed along smoothly for 20 years. Those are her, her words. It was smooth sailing for 20 years. But now this rogue wave of technology has kind of punched a hole in her business model. And she's like, Tim, for the first time in my professional life, I feel scared. I'm afraid of what could happen. How about you? What is that? Maybe, maybe it's a situation with your kids, you know, at home. Uh, your child walked into your, you know, bedroom and, and, and announced, Mom and Dad, I'm moving out. I'm moving out and I'm moving in with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. And we're going to Cleveland and living in a van down by the river and then like all this, you know, whatever. All, like all of a sudden it turns up, it turns up all this, this fear and anxiety. Like, wait, what do, you, what do you mean? Because it's overwhelming circumstances. That's the thing about waves. You guys know this. They come in sets. They keep coming and coming one wave after another and you get over and over and over again. That's what happened to Jordan. Jordan's a young mom who was hit with wave after wave, and it rocked her faith. Let's listen to the first half of her story. The first 10 years of my life were incredibly challenging um, because when I was 18 months old, I was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma. So the doctors decided that the only way I was truly going to be able to survive was amputating my left leg. Since I was diagnosed with cancer at such a young age and the treatment that I was given really takes a toll on your body and a lot of women can't have children after that and I was one of those women. For the first time in my life I think it hit me and uh, I really understood that I was going to be missing out on something that I had dreamed about my entire life. I was always afraid that no man would accept me in a way that a wife wants to be accepted physically, you know, intimately. That was a huge deal for me because I was now dating this man who we were talking about marriage and looking at him and knowing that I lacked something that he wanted was detrimental to the way that I saw myself. My husband and I were married and on the fourth month, I took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. In the fifth month of my pregnancy, I was told by a doctor that I had a heart condition that was um, critical and that if I did not abort my child that it would claim my life. I have never felt so confused, so bitter, so afraid in that moment because I was terrified. I didn't want to die and this was my child and I knew that it was my duty to protect her the way that the Lord had sheltered me and protected me for so long against everything that the world had thrown at me. And so we decided that we were keeping Ellie, my daughter, even if that meant me not being alive. We were going to trust God every single minute of every day. You know, the months follow and I get bigger and bigger and Ellie kicks stronger and stronger and uh, we have her and she's healthy and it was wonderful. It was the most amazing day of my life because I saw a miracle that I was told would never happen come true. And then two days later, I was trying to go to sleep and I felt like I was suffocating. And so I called my doctor and she said, you need to come in right now. 
She looked at me and she said, Jordan, you're going into heart failure. I felt like the rug was being pulled out from underneath me. I had this beautiful child, I have this home, I have this husband, and now it's gone. Me being able to watch her grow into the woman that I wanted was gone. And I remember I was at church one Sunday and I was feeling weak and I just threw my hands up and I said, are you listening to me? Do you hear me? I am asking you for help and you are silent. And I just felt the Holy Spirit say to me, I'm gonna keep allowing things to happen until you trust me. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You, you haven't even heard the full story. I mean, but talk about overwhelming circumstances. Cancer diagnosis, infertility, high-risk pregnancy, miracle baby, heart failure. I mean, you can't blame Jordan for questioning God when it's wave after wave after wave, one thing after the next. Maybe you can relate. You know, you just keep getting one ding after the next, more bad news, and you find yourself bracing, just kind of hardening up, and your faith gets, gets rocked, and you, you actually you kind of, you find, you find yourself scrambling trying to find one of these, <laughs> right? And you're like, God, don't you care? God, where are you in this? Don't you see this? That's what the disciples say in verse 38. They say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? I mean, you can almost hear the panic in their voices, right? Rogue waves have that effect. They, they strike fear into our hearts because we think this could be the thing that finally takes me under. This could be it. And let me tell you something. When that storm strikes, it is very human to question whether God cares because all of our fears come right to the surface. I mean, listen, you can follow Jesus a long time. You might be a lifelong Christian. And even if you have a strong faith in Christ, when you are unexpectedly hit by a scary situation, the most natural thing is actually to accuse God. God I mean, you could fill in the blank. God, don't you care if my marriage falls apart? God, don't you care if I ever find a job that's fulfilling? God, don't you care if we lose our house or our kids go off the deep end? Don't you care if we can't have kids? See, intellectually, we may know that God cares, but emotionally, we get disoriented and confused by God's seeming indifference to this, this rogue wave. I mean, here's a scary question. Where's Jesus during the storm? Look at verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. This is not the most comforting verse in Scripture, okay? It's a, it's a little disturbing. I mean, if you're, if you're not a Christian, that may be the reason why, right? Because you're like, yeah, I don't know. You know, when a rogue wave hits, you get a difficult diagnosis, or somebody that you love is suffering, and God doesn't do anything immediately. We assume either A, he doesn't care, or worse, B, he's asleep at the switch. You know, try to put yourself in that boat, you know. I can't, I can't imagine what it was like, but if I put myself in that boat, I'm trying to imagine these guys are in the middle of this storm and like, you know, who's steering the boat? I'm guessing Peter took charge, you know, he's like the hothead, like, I got this, you know, guys, okay, all hands on deck, all hands on deck, and they're all kind of, you know, run up there, <laughs> and they're, they're like bailing out, water's pouring in the side and spraying in their faces, and then, and then someone says, hey, wait a minute, where's Jesus? And they're like, oh yeah, good idea, good idea. And they run, oh, he's in the back of the boat, sir. What's he doing down there? He's sleeping, sir. He's sleeping on a cushion, sir. In other words, the disciples need one of these. And Jesus is doing this. He's sleeping. 
This storm's about to sink us. Doesn't seem to bother him. Right? We all face these scary moments in our lives that cause us to question if God truly cares and can come through in our crisis. I mean, maybe you're here today and you're facing a scary storm in your life. And if you're honest, it's rattled you. It's got you wondering, can God be counted on to get you to the other side? But see, the truth is, when you're hit with a rogue wave, you have a choice between fear on one hand and faith on the other. You notice something that Jesus isn't surprised by the situation? He didn't wake up and be like, where did this come from? When a sudden storm hits your life, listen, it may have surprised you, it doesn't surprise God. God isn't like watching Netflix, eating Tostitos, and being like, oh, son of a gun, look what happened down there. You know, it's not, <laughs> call the Trinity, emergency meeting. It's, it's, that's not how this works. <laughs> Guys, remember something. Why are they in the storm? Whose idea was it to go sailing on the lake? Jesus. <laughs> Verse 35 says, uh, they, they, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. In other words, the trip was Jesus' idea. <laughs> I mean, that's something to think about. It's Jesus' idea. And, he, and notice he, what he didn't say. He never said, so we're going to go the other side, guys. And here's how we're going to get there. We're going we're to buckle in. It's going to be smooth sailing. Uh, we're going to have some margaritas once we get to the middle as the sun goes down. We'll take some selfies bring your sunscreen. He didn't say any of that stuff. He made no promises to his disciples how they were going to get there. He made one promise. We're going to the other side, and no matter what happens, I will be in the boat with you. See, a lot of people think, if I have a strong faith, then life should just be smooth sailing. If Jesus is in the boat, I should have a worry-free life. Newsflash. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're exempt from the storms of life. Is that true? Say amen. amen. In fact, just the opposite. You may be in a situation right now that you're anxious to get out of, but it's precisely where God wants you. Because you're a follower of Jesus, and Jesus wants to teach you something about his heart, that he can be trusted, and that he is good, and you can trust him even in this. I want you to think about this. The disciples are not in this storm because they're bad people, or they disobeyed God's will, and now they're being punished. They were in the storm precisely because they obeyed the will of God. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. They're like, we will follow you. They were following Jesus' divine command. Listen, some of you, this is the truth. Your boat is getting rocked right now, but understand, you are in the storm by divine appointment. And God is holding out a choice right now between fear on one hand and faith on the other. Look what Jesus says. He said to his disciples, why are you so what? Afraid, do you still have no what? Faith. In other words, he says, and now I'm going to teach you. See, if, you, if you're in the storm, you know I'm in the boat. Now, I get it. I may be sleeping. I may be out of sight. And you can't see me right now. You've got a choice. On the one hand, you can respond to this thing with what? Fear. Very natural. Or you can respond with a spirit of faith. And notice, faith and fear are really two sides of the same coin. You ever think about that? Again, Jesus is drawing a contrast between fear and faith. Guys, what's the definition of fear? Answer. Fear is believing what hasn't happened will come true. Oh, these waves are crashing. We're going to drown. We're going down with the ship. I just get, right? In our life, it's projecting, right? The company is downsizing. Did you hear that? I just know I'm next. I just know it. I know I'm going to be on that list. 
the cancer is spreading, and it runs in my family. It's genetic. I just know it. There's no way I'm going to be. I, the blood work hasn't come back. I just know it's going to be bad news. Now, that hasn't happened yet. But that's where our mind goes when we respond with a spirit of fear. We awfulize the situation and say, well, if that comes true, there's no way I could survive this. Fear, believing what hasn't happened will come true. Now, what's the definition of faith? Answer, the exact same thing. Faith is believing what hasn't happened will come true because God is good. This is an unexpected crisis, but you know what? I know my God has a plan. He's writing every page in my story, and Jesus is in the boat with me. And even though I can't see him right now, all I see is this giant wave. I'm not going to let my fears take me under because God is good. And even though I can't see him right now, I trust him because Jesus said, let us go to the other side, and he's in the storm with me. And it's not part of my plan, but I know my God will provide exactly what I need because I have, I have faith. I believe what hasn't happened yet will come true. And my God will come through for me because he's good. Amen? Amen? Do you have faith like that? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Fear and faith have the exact same definition. And Jesus says to his disciples to choose. Why are you guys so afraid? Do you still have no what? Faith. Friends, I think that's a choice God may be asking some of you to make this morning. How will you respond to your storm? Will you respond with a spirit of fear or faith? It's interesting how they're two sides of the same coin. See, this is an advanced class Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching them an unpopular truth about Christianity. Most preachers won't tell you this, but you look like a smart people, so I'm going to let you in on a secret. Jesus never promises his followers that they will somehow be exempt from suffering, loss, or disappointment. In fact, in Luke 21, Jesus made this promise to his disciples. He said, um, they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. Have you ever seen that verse on a bumper sticker? Like, <laughs> maybe an inspirational meme? No. <laughs> that is not a promise Many Christians like to claim, but it's a promise nonetheless. But what's interesting, though, is Jesus immediately says, but not a hair on your head will perish. Now, what's, what's, what's Jesus? Give him a praise. Yeah, you give him a praise for that. <laughs> half of you are giving a praise. Half of you are like, what the heck does that mean? He just said they're going to die, <laughs> right? His point is that having faith does not mean you're somehow exempt from tragedy from painful situations in your life. Rogue waves, guy, are a fact of life in a fallen world. And they rock our faith. But Jesus says, in the middle of the storm, not a hair on your head will perish. In other words, there's something deeper they can't touch when you are in the grip of my sovereign, loving care. Because even death isn't the final thing. The last thing isn't even the worst thing, because I'm a God of resurrection. See, because your God is sovereign. It means he is completely and utterly in control of every single detail of your life. So you may feel out of control, but Jesus exerts control over every aspect of your life, down to the finest detail. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. So God says, I'm aware of your needs, but understand, I want you to trust me like a loving father. And I'm going to express my love and care over your life, but I'm not going to do it by promising smooth sailing. I'm going to promise my presence in the middle of the storm. 
See, what is true faith? It's not the absence of crisis, it's the presence of Christ. Can we say that? Faith is not the absence of crisis, but the presence of Christ in the middle of the crisis. So whenever you get hit with a rogue wave, there's always two storms that rage. There's an external storm, your, your job, your marriage, your kids, your bills, whatever. It's a storm out there, but then there's a storm in here, in your heart. The fear, the panic, the worry, the anxiety. And what's interesting is I notice in my own prayers, I'm always, almost always asking God to calm the storm out there, right? Like change the circumstances. Heal my family member, you know, save my job, help my kids. And you know what? That's great. Your father, he's a loving heavenly father. He says, boldly ask for your needs. And guess what? He can do a mighty miracle. We see that in this church. Verse 39 says, Jesus got up. Oh, this is amazing. Rebuked the wind and said to the waves, he's speaking to the ocean, quiet, be still. Where have you heard that phrase before? You remember in the synagogue when he spoke to the demon, quiet, be still, come out of him. Same exact language. He speaks to the storm and it listens. Then the wind died down and it was what? Completely calm. And this is the miracle. This is the one that we all want when the storm hits. We want Jesus to come, to speak into our storm, and it stops. And sometimes it does. But notice the story doesn't end there. The final verse is not, and the disciples were like, whew, that was a close one. All right, Jesus, you can go back to sleep. Hit the tunes, guys, we're going to the beach. That's not how it ends. What, what did the disciples feel at that moment? More fear. It says, they were terrified and ask each other, who is this? Who are you? Even the wind and the waves obey this man. Who is a man that speaks to the storms and it listens and rolls over? The light bulb's going off. They've been calling him teacher the whole time. But in this moment, they see something truly terrifying. They realize in this boat, in this man, we have seen the power of God Almighty. And they're terrified. So their fear of the storm turns into fear of the Lord. See, there's two different kinds of fear. Fear of the storm is that frightening, I don't have enough faith, ah, it's, life's going to get me kind of thing. But the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We have a holy respect because we have a holy God and he can do anything. And this man in the boat, he's Lord over the waves and the water. He controls the forces of the deep. He muzzles them like a small dog, roll over and nature bows at his feet. Who is this? Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than a healer. This man is a savior. He's a life preserver. See, the disciples knew their Bible. And in the Old Testament, they knew there was only one person who could speak to a storm and still it. They were probably recalling Psalm 89, which says, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You rule over the surging sea. And when its waves mount up, you what? You still them. It is beginning to dawn on them. He's more than a teacher. He's more than a healer. He's my Savior. He's my life preserver in this life and the life to come. Guys, that's what Jordan discovered. Remember the young mom was rocked by wave after wave? Let's listen to the final part of her story. 
And I remember I was at church one Sunday and I was feeling weak and I just threw my hands up and I said, are you listening to me? Do you hear me? I am asking you for help and you are silent. And I just felt the Holy Spirit say to me, I'm going to keep allowing things to happen until you trust me. Are we there yet? And about two weeks ago, I was sitting on this couch and I got a phone call from a doctor and he said, Jordan, your heart is healing and we don't know why. And now I feel like I'm at the place in my life where I've seen too much of him to not trust him. I feel like he's brought me to a place of surrender, of peace, that my trust looks a lot like that. It looks a lot like surrender. I trust him because I know him. Do you have faith like that? She said, I trust him because I know him. And my trust looks a lot like surrender. What, what does it mean to surrender? Surrender is literally like, we play cops. I surrender. What do you do? You put your hands up. And you say, I, I can't control this. God, you are completely in control, and I trust you. Even when I can't see you. Even when I can't feel you and I'm freaking out because this thing's breaking down on me. I trust you completely. Jesus, save me. Can I ask you this? Do you know Jesus like that? <laughs> I mean, he is your savior. He is your life preserver. Have you asked him to speak to your storm? All of our campuses, those, those of you in a storm today, I'm guessing there's a lot of you, you may be asking, can Jesus be trusted to get me safely to the other side? And the answer is yes. Your God is a good God, completely trustworthy. He gave up his only son for your life. And he can speak to your storm, and he still calms storms today, amen? amen? But understand, even if he doesn't immediately calm the storm out there, he will always calm the storm in here. In John 14, Jesus gave this promise to his disciples. He said, boys, gather up, listen. Peace I leave with you. Let's read it together. My peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. So don't let your hearts be troubled. And what? Do not be afraid. Can we read that one more time? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Have faith. Take my hand. Trust me. I'll get you to the other side. You know what God's promises to you this morning? I think he called you to come to church today to let you know he wants to make a promise to you. Here's his promise. I'm going to give you my peace in the middle of your storm. Not the world's version of peace. Faith is not the absence of crisis, guys. It is the presence of Christ. Amen? The bedrock belief that Jesus is in your boat and he is 100% trustworthy. There's not a storm he hasn't stilled. He is completely faithful. The one who called you is faithful, and he's in complete control, and he can get you to the other side. Sometimes he'll calm the storm out there, but he will always calm the one in here because he's the Lord of the wind and the waves. He's saying to you, don't be afraid. Trust me. Take my hand, and we'll go to the other side together. Amen? Let's bow our heads, church. All our campuses, would you just bow your heads for prayer? I want to close by praying for those of you who are in a storm right now. 
I'm guessing there's a lot of you. So if you're here today and you're like, man, there's a storm I need God to speak to in my life. Would you just raise your hand right now where you are? Just raise your hand. Oh, hands up all over the place. All of our camps, just raise your hand. If you need God to speak to a storm, keep your hands up. I want to pray for you right now. Father God, these are your children. They're reaching out for you, Jesus. And I pray in this moment of decision, Father, you will flood them with the Holy Spirit, a peace that passes understanding and that their faith will be renewed. Father, you are our Savior. You have plans and purpose for their life, plans to give them hope and a future, not to harm them. And so, Father, we believe right now, we put our hands up in a posture of surrender, and we say, God, we know you got this. You've got this. We're going to lay the diagnosis at your feet, Jesus. We're going to lay our children at your feet, Jesus. We're going to leave our job situation at your feet, Jesus. We can't hold them in our hands. They're now in yours, Jesus. Let us see your nail-scarred palms, God, as a sign of your love for us, that you can be trusted and you are good. Father, we celebrate the miracles that have happened. We look forward to the ones to come, but do a miracle right now in our hearts. I pray, God, right now, would you speak to a man under the sound of my voice who is drowning in fear and anxiety at work and say, quiet, be still, my son, I've got this. Would you speak to a woman, Lord, who's, who's, who's just drowning in fear and quiet her and say, my daughter, my little girl, I've got this. Don't be afraid. I'll give you my faith. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, I'm praying right now for those who don't know Jesus. Again, we're still praying at all of our campuses. If you're here today and you've been coming for a while, but you're like, I've never made Jesus my Lord and Savior. Like you guys talk about him very personally. I don't feel that. Today's a day. Put on your life preserver. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender your whole life to him. You can do that simply by praying. And I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask you to just pray it out loud after me. It's not magic words. It's just talking to God, what's in your heart. So if that's you, you want to give your life to Christ, you want to say, Jesus, get in my boat, I want you to pray with me, okay? Let's, in fact, all pray this out loud together. Just say, dear Jesus, would you please speak to my storm? Save me. I surrender my life to you. I give you control. Forgive me for my sins. Be my Lord. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. I give you control of my boat and I will follow you to the other side. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to show us your love, that he died on that cross and then he was raised by your power to show us that the last thing is never the worst thing, that we have eternal life. Let them know right now, Father, that they have, you have stepped into the boat, Jesus. They have put on a life preserver and they are safe in your grip of grace forevermore. In Jesus' name, everyone prayed. Amen. Amen. Liquid Church, welcome new believers to the family of God. It's awesome. It's awesome.